if you actually can, through lived experience, uh, talk to someone about the journey toward love and peace and joy, then you and 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 that that involves an experiential relationship with the Trinity. You don't need to worry about marketing or church growth strategies. You've become a little bit more like Jesus in terms of your problem is more chasing people away as opposed to trying to find some to come. Hello and welcome to the Wellspring Soul Care Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gotthardt, and I'm part of the Wellspring staff team. At Wellspring, we exist to help people discover or rediscover God's personal, generous, transformative love and the joy-filled, abundant life that's offered in the kingdom of God. We come alongside pastors, leaders, and others to help them walk with God and have conversations that are meant to engage with and even deepen your own soul and your life with God. So thanks for joining us for these conversations as we go. One of the thinkers and thought leaders that has been most significant in shaping not only Wellspring, but many in the Christian world and beyond is Dallas Willard. Dallas taught philosophy at USC for many years, and his books are really now considered classics in the world of Christian spiritual formation, discipleship, and theology. We're privileged today to have a conversation with Gary Moon, who wrote Dallas's biography, Becoming Dallas Willard. And I think you're going to be fascinated by not only Gary's insights about Dallas, but to understand what, what drove Dallas, what was underneath his way of thinking and his mission for not only the church, but for a life in the kingdom of God. So please enjoy our conversation and interview today with Gary Moon. Gary, again, thank you so much for uh, taking time to, to chat today. And um, you know, we'll just kind of jump in if that's all right. With um, you've written a, you've written a biography of Dallas Willard, who obviously many of our listeners know uh, his writing very well, or at least uh, he know his voice and his his work. And I, I just love to even start with how did you come to to know Dallas? How'd you get to know him? Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking that, Richard. Um, it's good to be with you. Um, well, it goes back a ways, I think about 1988 or so. Um, and so interestingly, uh, to me, it's interesting. Um, I'd graduated from Fuller about three years prior, and I'd uh, gotten to be very good friends with uh, with John Ortberg, and mm. it's the the same weekend in different parts of the country, uh, two people that know us well put a copy of Spirit of the Disciplines in our hands, and we both both read that book the same weekend, and and some light bulbs went on. Uh, I had um, had uh, drove across the country years a few years before to spend six years at Fuller for a fantastic program in clinical psych and integrating theology with it, but as did John, but when we read this book, we had this similar thought, and that is, this is, this is what I was hoping for. I mean, as good as Fuller was, and it was great, but there was something about 
there's just this possibility of real change and spiritual formation woven into the process, the, the heart of the process. Uh, and so I read a couple of chapters and then I put it away because I was afraid if I read any more, I would never have an, an original thought. Uh, <laughs> I started missing reading it. So I dug it out again. And uh, within a year, I don't think I'd even finished the book yet, but within a year I wrote to Dallas out of blue because I had this idea for starting something that was going to be called an Institute of clinical theology, not clinical psychology, but clinical theology. Mm. And I invited uh, 15 people. Uh, Dallas was the first one I wrote to be on the board. Uh, 14 and 15 said yes. And eventually the 15th person did. But um, so we just wrote back a personal note and um, said he would, I couldn't believe it. He'd be on the board. And then, he would said he would come out and speak at the uh, our first conference in clinical on clinical theology, and that was in like ninety or ninety one. And uh, I never forget he got up in front of this gathering, few hundred people, and I uh, didn't know what he was going to do or say. And he said, uh, "I think all theology should be clinical theology." And with that statement, he had a friend for life with me, and I. Um, I saw him off after the conference was over and just spent the next three decades or so, or two and a half decades, I guess, trying to think of excuses to be in the same room with him. Sure. And, uh, we came up with all kinds of things to do. Like we, uh, we started something called the conversations journal. That was, sure. that was, that was Willard. Uh, I mean, that we, <laughs> and, and Richard Foster too, but, it was, it was or, the five sections of the journal were organized around his five components of the person. So there would always be a couple of articles targeted to the, to the head, to the heart, to the, you know, to the, to the body, uh, to social relationships and, and, the, and the will. And then we tried to hear from at least one representative from each of the six streams of living water, if you will, of the six great traditions of faith, mm. Christian and just from there, the small group curriculum projects um, had the just tremendous good fortune of being allowed to work with the Renovari Institute, uh, which meant, you know, twice a year for a week, listening to Dallas teach and being with them. And I just just continued. And, and then eventually, um, eventually um, just had the great, the great good fortune of being asked to be part of the Martin Institute uh, of Christianity and Culture. And the only bad thing about that is that, uh, you know, Dallas passed away two or three years after that. Wow. That yeah. A couple of years into that process. Anyway, wow. mm. I made a friend for life. Yes. So, Gary, a, a moment ago, you said that Dallas said at that uh, gathering that all theology is, should be clinical theology. Can you, can you unpack that or speak to that a little bit? Sure, I think so. I mean, at the time, I was just relieved that he was blessing the uh, blessing the conference. I think I know what he meant. Um, I remember Eugene Peterson said once he was uh, cornered by a group of people that uh, may not have been completely thrilled with the message. I'm not sure, but someone asked him if, uh, <laughs> if you had had to have used one word other than salvation for that concept, what would you have said? And he said, "Well, that's easy." Uh, because sozo means healing, that salvation means healing. So I think mm. Dallas was saying <laughs> that ultimately theology is about the healing of the person, the healing of the soul, 
and so it makes sense that you wouldn't limit uh, healing to clinical psychology, but to but to clinical theology as well. So I think the the mm. healing, the experiential aspect uh, of of theology, stepping into it as stepping into a healing process, as opposed to you know learning facts about or making sure theology is lined up systematically. Yeah, and that even I think Dallas speaks to that in. Um... I believe it was divine conspiracy where he talks about almost like a, a barcode kind of theology of like getting saved where you just get to get your stamp to get into heaven, so to speak. Right. Right. As opposed to theology is for life that, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, can I ask then what, I mean, because uh, well, what a rich and long relationship you had uh, with Dallas, what, what is it that drew you? Do you think most to his, uh, not only his teaching, but uh, I think his life too, I would think. Well, it, it it didn't hurt that he was that he grew up in rural Missouri, and someone who grew up in a rural, <laughs> rural part of the country. There's there's like, I think there's a little bit of a connection there. Uh, it didn't hurt that his uh, intellect his intellect is, was so impressive. But uh, but there's something underneath that. Uh, he was he was talking about uh, with great certainty uh, something that had been missing for me in Christianity, and that to me made sense of Christianity in a whole new way. It's like he's describing something that somehow got left out of the version of mm. Christianity that I grew up with. And so I think, I think that that's it. I mean, um, um, I think now I could probably describe that missing part a little more clearly. Um, and it helped. I mean, this is, this is in the, in the biography, but it's just there because it, it, it happens. This, this scene happened where he was, um, he, he, as far as he was concerned, it might have been his deathbed. It, it wasn't. It was the last few months of his life, and he was about to have surgery, which was very invasive and could have resulted in death easily. He survived it and lived for a few months longer. But he called in a friend and uh, one of his 31 PhD students, uh, J.P. Moreland, and he said, J.P., I want you to know these are the four concerns that have driven my life. And even though I'd known Dallas, I guess, for 25 plus years at that point and had many conversations, there was something about him just hit laying out the four concerns that the kind of the tumblers fell open, the lock fell open, tumblers aligned. And it's like, oh, and I realized what the missing part was. And I realized that he had spent his whole life driven by these four concerns to the point where each of his Christian books, anyway, are address one of these four concerns. And so as mm. he said it to J.P. Moreland, which I had to ask for a translator because they're philosophers and I didn't understand it. But once I got the translation, <laughs> I was with him that um, he said, I have a concern for a robust metaphysical realism. That meant next to nothing to me until I understand what he <laughs> meant that he has a concern uh, <laughs> um, that to let people know there is a mind independent reality that even though you can't see aspects of it, even though aspects are invisible, it's there. It's as real as table and chair and tables and chairs. Uh, ju just as you can't see the Pythagorean theorem, but it exists. Uh, interacting with it proves that it exists, even though it's invisible. Um, so that basically the, the kingdom and the Trinity are part of reality as surely as our tables and chairs. Uh, 
And so what does he do? He writes a divine conspiracy about the invisible real all around us. Um, the second concern he had, he said, for an epistemic realism, translation for a psychologist to understand it, um, not only is the kingdom real and the Trinity real, you can actually step into that reality, interact with it, draw knowledge from that reality. It can be a source of knowledge. So in other words, there's something going on more than just a leap of faith here. If you're interacting with a reality that is here and certain and present, mm. uh, it takes faith to believe that you're interacting with this thing that you can't see, uh, that you may be experiencing. And so he writes mm. the spirit of the disciplines as the, the disciplines as a way of being more aware of the invisible real and interacting with it and, and, and learning from it. Um, and he writes hearing God, two books addressing a second concern. Uh, his third concern uh, was more of an anthropology concern that human beings are uniquely designed just for that type of interaction. Uh, mm -hmm. But in large part because of some of our invisible parts, like spirit and soul and mind and consciousness, where we are meant, designed, meant and designed to interact with that reality. And so he writes Renovation of the Heart to make sure people understand how the components of the person re, are, are participate in and are, and are part of that interaction. And then finally, he says, if, if all this is actually real and isn't whistling in the dark, um, then we are dealing with actual knowledge, not just faith, but actual knowledge as surely as a biologist is still dealing with actual knowledge. A biologist doesn't have to have faith. They're dealing with knowledge. Um, mm. Psychologists or a, or a sociologist is dealing with knowledge. He writes, knowing Christ today. Uh, that, so, so what was missing for me in Christianity was the deep belief in the invisible real uh, that you can interact with, that a, that a real apprenticeship, a real friendship is possible. Uh, with that reality. And I, 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 you know, Jane would be in a better place to know than me, Jane Willard, but I don't think it's a coincidence that Dallas spent more time later in his life with expressions of the Christian faith that were more known for their being, for being experiential, whether that be mm. Quaker or, or, uh, or, uh, church, uh, four, four square, uh, they, they, that the churches that you don't, that, uh, have kind of accepted those four things. Hmm. Interesting for someone who had such a, a remarkable intellect, and yet, the, and and yet, I mean, even just as you just unpacked for uh, for phrases that that take a lot of unpacking uh, for average people, but but that he longed for and leaned into that experiential uh, nature of of that of life with God. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true and very real. And uh, the same person we were talking about, J.P. Moreland, uh, back in his USC days with Dallas, he tells a story about uh, some new philosopher student comes running up to him and says, you know, basically something like, "What's up with this Willard professor?" And, he, and J.P. says, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, I was with his, was in his office and uh, we talked and we ended up praying together." And he said, "Now you know, you realize." 
that when you pray to Jesus, he'll walk right up to you and say hello. <laughs> it's that simple, uh, wow. simple, maybe a Missouri farm boy way of expressing those four wow. heady concerns. So for you then, what would you say for you, Gary, drew you most to doubt, you know, his, who he was, like you said, that didn't, uh, didn't hurt at all the commonality that you experienced, but was it, was it more his teaching? Was it just the, the way he was, was he certainly wasn't the only one, he was a unique voice, but he wasn't the only one expressing some of these things, but there was something that drew you to to him, what, what? How would you express that? Uh, that, that me, me personally. Um, well, I mean, I think initially, and um, because um, I mean, I'm being a psychologist, mm. and um, there was, I mean, I, I think, I think those four concerns cut across academic disciplines. So I don't think in any way it's mm. unique to being a psychologist, but I think that because I was a psychologist and was wondering. Why are certain things off limits? Why can't you borrow from spiritual direction in you know in a, in a professional way and so forth? And and so his uh, he had a, he had a great well he had a great interest in many many things, but psychology was certainly on the on the radar for him um, as well. I mean there was, there was some connection around that uh, permission giving. Um, I think I wrote a chapter or something about uh, Dallas Willard is my favorite psychologist. And of course, he's not one, although he mm-hmm. did um, take undergraduate classes and almost completed a, a, a graduate degree in counseling. He's very sensitive to psychology. But, but mm-hmm. the, the, the applicational aspect of his theology to, mm-hmm. uh, to the human person and to life and to relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's remarkable that, as you say, that Dallas had these four great concerns and desires and that of course not only were they reflected in his writing but it's it seems as if god gave him the time if you will and the uh freedom to be able to give to leave something behind to leave a legacy if you will in his written work and his teaching in in each of those areas um how would you describe though or or what do you attribute you know, Dallas has, has had such a wide influence at this point, and it, and it seems to, in some ways, continue to grow even after his death. But what would you attribute that to for, a, you know, a guy who taught philosophy and has such a robust intellect? Um, and yet he, he seems to have across both denominational and, you know, a different kind of boundaries. What, what do you attribute his influence and reach to? Mm-hmm. Well... So I'm going to I'm going to uh, date myself. Not even sure if you remember this or not, but um, uh, partly because it's the political season, and trust me, this will not be a political comment. I just I just remember from across the decades. Um, I'm not sure what year it was, uh, but but it was when Ross Perot was running for president. Oh, and, sure. Okay, uh-huh. and, uh, was that '92? I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But anyway, there was a, so so he he had one of these moments where he. Um, they were talking about some treaty or something, and he said uh, he talked about that if this passes, uh, uh, everybody will be talking about that uh, giant sucking sound of jobs leaving the country. Now, I'm not saying that for political reasons at all, but what I am saying is 
that I, in my opinion, in my opinion, um, that it, uh, particularly in evangelicalism, um, there was a giant sucking sound, if you will, of something kind of leaving, not, a, not everywhere, uh, but it was not as true, I don't think, with the earlier uh, expressions of faith, Orthodox and Catholics, for instance, uh, uh, um, because so much emphasis was placed on, this is kind of uh, ironic with Dallas having such a keen intellect, but so much emphasis placed on, you know, are we thinking correctly about this and, and systematizing this and, and all of that, that uh, and, and then, you know, the search for respectability and so forth, that what got lost, in my opinion, was the experiential. Uh, that that was the giant sucking sound. What happens when what happens when you take the experiential out? Well, people start leaving to try to find it, and so the the charismatic movement is born in the early 1900s. Is this hunger for the experiential? I think Dallas, and then of course later Richard Foster and with Renovare, there was this systematic presentation of a look through the centuries of church history a look at devotion masters where people are actually interacting with the invisible real. Um, mm. One of Dallas's favorite books that he, I think, continued giving away until his last year or so of life. Uh, I, I don't like the title. It's almost humorous, but it's, um, it's uh, called Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians. Uh, mm. So, you know, it's not the best title in the world. And it's also, it's, it's not, it's not like great, prose necessarily not that i'm an expert but even i can observe that it's it's uh it's you know it doesn't sparkle but so why did dallas like this book so much well the author it starts with jacob and deals with about 30 or so people in one chapter each um that were experiencing the trinity were experiencing god and then describing their experiences so, mm -hmm. so dallas is a phenomenologist and so basically, if 30 people across ever how many centuries, that is more than two millennia, three millennia or so, um, are going to the thing itself, even if that thing is invisible, the Trinity, the kingdom, and are reporting similar experiences, then there must be something there. I think that's why I like that book so much. It's like, well, this is like all, all but scientific, not just not uh, in addition to theological proof that this works. Here's Jacob going to the thing itself and coming back changed and reporting these things. Here's somebody 500 years later. Here's three people in the in the uh, you know the 1900s. Um, I mean, I hope I haven't lost our course here with that. But basically, the it, what. The, he's describing the possibility of the experience of God in a very intellectually sound manner. Now, in addition to his four critical concerns, the other reason I think, one of the other reasons I think for his popularity, uh, he would talk about Jesus being really smart. Um, that may not sound like much, but if you've ever stood up in front of a group of people and asked them to suggest some names of some really smart people, you may be surprised by how long it takes to get around to Jesus. If Jesus ever comes up as a really smart person. Right. So he's so Dallas loved to talk about how the really smart Jesus also was attempting to answer the four questions that every philosopher since and before Plato has been trying to answer. 
So these are, this is a different set of four things, but that um, what is real, mm-hmm. okay, that takes you back to Dallas's four concerns that, that, that God and his kingdom is real, even though you can't see it, even though it's not matter. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, who is well off? Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who is alive in the kingdom, anybody, anyone who has stepped into John 17, 3 to know the Trinity, to know God, the Son whom he sent, Holy Spirit implied. Um, uh, who is a good person? Dr. Jesus answer, anyone who is permeated by love. How do I become one? Uh, you sign on as an apprentice to Jesus. Now you think about the four classic questions all philosophers attempt to answer. <laughs> Willard is saying that the answer to those four questions involves the four critical concerns. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the, about the invisible real and about that you can interact and you're, you know, you're at your best when you're permeated by love. He ties, he ties those two things together. Um, wow. That's, that's brilliant. And, and of course he's just pointing to, uh, who, Jesus reality and the reality of the kingdom of God and its present availability for us, isn't he? Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, I think another way of saying that is, um, at least I, I mean, I certainly believe this is true, that in doing those things, Dallas was a reformer, if you will, maybe an accidental reformer of, of modern evangelicalism back to the dynamics of the church of the first few centuries because these things were very present and not lost to the church of the first few centuries. They became lost uh, centuries and centuries later in certain parts, in certain parts of the church. Yeah. And so would you say then in some ways, I mean, with that, I guess uh, for me, one of the deepest concerns, I grew up in the church. I, uh, you know, learned scripture. I accepted Jesus into my heart, you know, and, and yet as I, uh, as I journeyed in my faith, what began to be a deeply troubling concern, not only looking around, but in myself was it's one thing to, to, to respond to Jesus invitation to enter into his kingdom, but it's another to experience actual transformation to actually, you know, become more like Jesus, um, to become a more, more alive, even more, or we want to say even more, fully alive towards God, more fully human. Um, It seems like Dallas was really uh, uh, stepping into that gap that you seem to be talking about too, that there was, yeah, we're filling our churches with people that, um, you know, have prayed a prayer and are trying to be good people and almost like good, good citizens, if you will. But there is, seems to be a lack of genuine transformation that we're seeing. Yeah. I think there's a, a tie to psychology there as well. In, in this sense, I, I remember from days of when I was a full-time psychologist that um, I remember thinking over and over and over again as, um, I, I mean, I, I've said in the past that no one ever went into the office to talk to me where there wasn't one of three uh, striking problems present, uh, either uh, kind of the classic painful emotions of depression or anger or anxiety, and then if you take into account uh, the impact of, of, of those emotions and, on, uh, and life circumstances on relationships, 
And if you take into account the addictions as far as trying to deal with those negative emotions in non-helpful ways, then I think I, I don't, you, you, you expand it to those five things. I don't think, I think I'll spend about 20,000 hours in a, in a room with people listening to their lives. And I can't recall of a time where someone couldn't quickly take me to one of those five things. And most often, uh, uh, anger, uh, depression, anxiety. Well, what's the flip side of those emotions? It's love and peace and joy. If you actually can, if you actually can, through lived experience, uh, talk to someone about the journey toward love and peace and joy, then you, and, and, and that, that involves an experiential relationship with the Trinity, you don't need to worry about marketing or church growth strategies. You, you've become a little bit more like Jesus in terms of your problem is more chasing people away as opposed to trying to find some to come. You know, it's been said, don't meet your heroes. You know, some would say because you're you inevitably disappointed. And obviously for many who have read much of Dallas uh, or have heard of him, you knew him uh, well uh, as those three qualities, love and peace and joy. What did you see of those in, in Dallas himself as you were with him? Well, well uh, um, uh, uh, each of them. I'm not just trying to be nice. I mean, he, uh, you know, he sometimes has been described as someone who lived in a, in a different zip code than the rest of us. I mean, it was, he, I don't mean this, to, uh, I don't think the biography was, uh, was hagiography, but I had to kind of be careful to work at it, not being that because I like him so much, but, um, um, uh, he, <laughs> he seemed to, walk at a different pace and to be uh, not concerned about some of the some of the things that, that some of us are concerned about just kind of let things go uh, it's a deep sense of slowness and peace about him i i think he was a, a very joyful person certainly later in life uh, um, others have said he was the type of person you couldn't even imagine uh, gossiping around them because it's just, it's just, you just sense that it's kind of like bringing matter and antimatter together. Now, having said all that, I think it's also true. And, and the title of the bi biography becoming Dallas Willard came about because he didn't start that way. He had a very, not, I was not just normal life, but a, I think in some ways ab abnormal, abnormally painful in some ways, childhood and, and life. And he, he discovered a lot of these things uh, through the laboratory of his own life, I think. So that, that became, that became kind of tricky really, because if you're, if you only knew Dallas as I did after age 50, when he just are at least probably late forties, when he had it all together, um, it was quite an eye opener to realize that wasn't always the case. Hmm. And he, did he, was he pretty open about that as you, I mean, cause you, you actually, I mean, he was aware you were writing this, I assume this book. Well, yes. It, 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 the short answer is yes. The long answer, it start. we knew we wanted to do something from the early days with the Martin Institute. And so at first we were thinking about uh, like a documentary. And so mm -hmm. he participated and I had like 150 pages of single space notes 
when it was thinking about more of a film type project on his life. But then, so when he passed away, those notes became a foundation for just a whole, just many, many, many more interviews and lots of time, spending lots of time with people who were, who knew him. Did Dallas, uh, want to talk was it difficult for him to talk about himself or or even as you said those early days was that was it difficult for him to bring those up or relive them um i really think he wanted them talked about mm -hmm. i mean i do remember several occasions where he would say something like it's it's important to tell everything it's mm -hmm. important to he would say like tell it warts and all mm -hmm. i think he realized that the value of seeing uh <laughs> Um, uh, but both ends of his life. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, you you know, Gary, you've given a, a real gift to to I think the the church and the community by allowing people to to know Dallas as a person and his journey because we get to see Dallas's thinking and writing in in substantive ways. And I've been thinking recently about the fact that you know Dallas isn't with us anymore. Eugene Peterson. Um, you know, you have some of these, you know, giants, if you will, that have, uh, have, or soon will no longer be with us. Um, you know, what do you see, uh, from your perspective, do you see some, you know, I mean, there's not going to be another Dallas or another Eugene specifically, but do you feel hopeful about what's, you know, what's emerging in, um, in the church? Uh, it, it, the short answer is yes. Um, I mean, in, in, in mentioning some of the things I did before, I, I didn't even get around to mentioning it. I mean, one of the most important, uh, maybe the, is uh, like uh, Renovari. And I bring Renovari up in this context because there's so many young voices there. So, yes, uh, they, I'm uh, wonderfully pleased by how many voices from people in their 20s and 30s and 40s. And they're, you know, they're not... It's not the same. It won't be uh, Dallas or Eugene. It'll be uh, those voices will sound and look different, but they already are, are there. Uh, and these uh, so many books. Um, hmm. uh, yeah, I think of John Mark uh, Comer, just to name one uh -huh. person, I could name 20 that uh, his book, uh, Ruthlessly Eliminate Hurry. Yeah. And how the Dallas inspiration in that. Well, so since we're talking about Dallas's work and writing a lot, what it, for someone listening and say, well, I haven't read uh, much of Dallas, I've heard of him or read bits and pieces, where would you recommend if someone to get more acquainted with his teaching or thinking, you know, where would, where would you recommend they start or go, you know, what, is there a, is there an order or sequence or does it just grab something and go? What would you say? Well, I mean, several things. I, 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 I promise I'm not saying this because of the connection to the biography, but as far as an overview of his life, which talks about some of the books as well, if someone doesn't know Dallas at all, that might be a logical starting place. However, mm -hmm. I think if someone has those four uh, critical concerns in mind and they know the concern Dallas is addressing in a specific book, you can start anywhere. In other words, if you start with a divine conspiracy... It's a very good place to start and you realize the concern that drives that book it helps or if you go move to the spirit of the disciplines and are hearing god and you realize his concern uh that you can interact uh with this invisible reality uh then that's a logical place to start uh the renovation of the heart 
if, if, if you know why he wrote it, um, how all the aspects of the person in, are involved in the process of formation makes sense. Or I probably wouldn't start with Knowing Christ today. I probably would do that one last. But um, I, you know, I, I don't think it matters where you start if you keep in mind why he wrote these specific books. Yeah. And, and again, Dallas is teaching, too, that you can, it's not hard to find um, audio or video of, of Dallas uh, teaching. There's something for me, I only got to hear Dallas in person just a couple of times, but I, it, the way he spoke, there was such a love and gentleness in it and a, and a, and a, and a, pr a profound simplicity, I would describe, the way he would speak. And so sometimes when I read Dallas's work, I can... I like to almost like imagine hearing his voice speaking these things. It, it helps me because he's dense in his writing. He's a, um, so uh, if someone wanted to see, besides just going on YouTube, are there are, uh, ways that they could listen or, or, or watch Dallas's teaching or places they, that would be accessible for that? Well, you know, YouTube is not a bad place to go and type in whatever for the search at, at, at conversatio.org, I mean, the website with the Martin Institute. It has some search possibilities as well. And okay. so most anything Dallas ever said that with, where, where there's an audio or a video recording that exists are written, you can find it there. And uh, 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 similar, it's very similar with um, Dallas Willard Ministries and, and that website. Um, both have search features that make it make it easy to find uh, thematically and topic. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And, and Gary, I do want to add, I, I really do appreciate so much becoming Dallas Willard. It's uh, not only just really well written and obviously clearly well researched and thought through, but it's, it really is a, a, a gift to get to know not just what Dallas thought, but who he uh, was as a person and, and to see his journey, as you said, warts and all. And, and yet, um, and so not just a tribute, but also just a, an inside look at, uh, at this remarkable person. So thank you for the gift of the book. Well, obviously it was a gift of being allowed to, uh, to do the, um, you know, to, to have conversations with the people that knew him well. That was a, that was a gift. If we could just sort of shift gears a little bit, you know, Gary, you occupy a unique space in the church and in the broader church as well. And as we talk in this podcast to leaders and and Christ followers, I, I'd love to hear a little bit of your perspective um, about, you know, the time that we're currently in. As, as this airs, we're still in the throes of the pandemic. It's been this really difficult year for all of us, but I think... It, pastors and church leaders have been at the forefront of a lot of the holding others pain as well as their own. Um, what, what have you seen or what would you maybe more specifically, what would you want pastors and leaders to hear uh, that might be helpful to them in this, in the midst of this season? Yeah. Th th thank you, Richard. And that, that's a very difficult question. I mean, in, in, in this sense, I mean, uh, this, um, I don't know when I will uh, have ever looked so forward to a calendar year being over as 2020. I mean, I just, some of the things that have happened this year, I just never thought I would, I would, I would live to see. And in some ways with it, and it's been so much pain for so many people, um, 
that it, it's it's almost it, it, um, I'm going to try to answer your question, but it, but I'm just sure. kind of acknowledging it's a little bit like being asked what's what's the best thing to say to someone who's lost a loved one. It's like I you know uh, I can't think of a thing to say. I think the best thing to do is just shut up and listen to their pain. But 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 I know what you're saying, and and um, and I think it might be a similar answer in both cases. Is there um, um, I'm reminded of Dallas's kind of the with God theme that was, as you know, has been part of all these things we've been talking about, this with God theme and how, you know, the, Ren the uh, Renovari Spiritual Formation Bible is sometimes called the with God Bible. And as they were putting it together and kind of stumbling and it was difficult and there was a certain time where it was particularly tense with the editorial team, uh, it got a little bit of sort of Christian tense in the room. And, um, but how do we proceed? And Dallas was actually the one that just started talking about the Bible as presenting all these different ways, 15 different ways of being with God from Genesis to, to Revelation, you know, kind of this promise of presence and then humans moving away from the relationship and then a re-promise of presence and moving away and another plan for presence. Uh, that That's about all I've got, Richard, is just that uh, what an incredible time to remember that you can go through anything from a funeral to the year 2020 and the pandemic and all the tension and that you can do it with God, that that you can just simply acknowledge the presence of God in the midst of it and be honest about our feelings in the midst of it and just do whatever we can do to not go through it alone, but that, that God is with us even in the midst of, of what's been an incredibly difficult time. Um, yeah, uh, it might be a time to think about vices and virtues. Um, in other words, that uh, years like 2020 can really bring us face to face with our, our vices, but the flip side of the, of the vice is the virtue. So if I'm finding myself more, more angry than usual, you know, than to ask myself, what, what is the, since anger is the, is simplistically stated, but there's, there's a psychological principle here that anger can be seen as the emotion of the frustrated goal. What is it that I want that's being frustrated or what is it that I'm trying too hard to guard or protect? And just to, um, to use the times for more awareness of being with God and to use devices to learn from them. How uh, is there a way for this vice to become a virtue? Those things may seem grandiose. That's about all I can think of. Um, or maybe could almost hear Dallas whispering to don't forget, even in the midst of these times, that you are an unceasing spiritual being. Don't forget that you are invited into an ongoing and continuous friendship with God. Um, yeah. Mm. I believe it was in Life Without Lack that Dallas said something like, the world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Of course, it doesn't mean that this world is not going to throw trouble at us or that we're going to suffer or that uh, or even, you know, face all kinds of hardship. But that in God's kingdom, that we are, an un as you said, uh, that Dallas said, an unceasing spiritual being with a glorious uh, future. So, well, Gary, I do want to ask you this then, as you 
you know, we like we like to ask this to folks on this podcast, you know, in the midst of all of this, and there's plenty of hard things to point at and look at in the world, in the church, in ourselves. But what is giving you hope these days? What's giving you hope for uh, for the church, uh, for the life itself these days? Where, where are you finding sources of hope? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate all of your questions. Um, well, I, um, two or three or four things popped to mind. Um, I mean, first, I, um, I, I sometimes say that I spent my life climbing down the tree of church history, and I kind of uh, got off near the ground. I mean, I, be, I became an Orthodox Christian. So what I'm about to say isn't championing in any way Orthodoxy, but it's just saying one thing that gives me hope is the ancient faith, that the ancient faith was and always has been vibrant, and it works. And so that, that gives me hope. Um, uh, the second, I guess the, uh, I still see it as a growing, um, receptivity to Willard and to Renovari, the spiritual formation, uh, movement, uh, that, uh, someone said like 20 years ago, they said the spiritual formation movement has legs. And what they meant was it's not going to be a passing fad. And, and I think that's right. Uh, and I think in fact, the modern spiritual formation movement really was just a continuation of stepping back into church history and across the centuries to when there was a vibrant, when, uh, vibrant expressions of Christianity that worked and have always worked. Uh, as Chris Hall says, uh, I think he might be quoting uh, Tom Oden, uh, remember that the Holy Spirit has a history. I mean, remember that spiritual formation has a history and it's, we're just rediscovering some of the history. Um, I, I am. I like that we seem to be moving away from denominations, at least in the sense of like pitting one against the other. That seems to be a little bit more. Little, uh, seems to be fading in modern times and in a healthy way. Um, and the last thing we've talked about it, but just the number of young ministers uh, that you know. And, male, female, cross-culture expressions of, of ministry and ministers that um, while they don't look or sound like some of the uh, ministers of my generation, they are connecting to the same uh, truth in a very deep way, but with a different flavor and with a maybe more missional, whatever that means. I'm not fully uh, on board with what it means. I sort of know what it means. Um, and connecting with Willard's four concerns. Mm. Well, I appreciate that a lot. And I, I'm reminded as well of something, again, I think it's anecdotal, but it, maybe you could speak to it as I believe Dallas was asked maybe uh, closer towards the end of his life of what he thinks about with, because he didn't hesitate to be critical of, of things in the church either. But, uh, but when asked if he was hopeful, he that he supposedly smiled and said, oh yes, because it's Jesus church and he knows what he's doing. Well, uh, Gary, besides becoming Dallas Willard, and we'll link to this in our in our notes uh, for this episode, but you've written extensively on a variety of other things. And in some ways, I think you've uh, done work that, you know, Dallas kind of threw out this challenge, it seemed like often to, to leaders saying, well, these are the things I've written about, but you, you know, need to take this and, and make this, if you will, a curriculum or a to live this out in the context of a, of a local church or, or how this is going to look. And, and that's been uh, some of what you've done as well 
and uh, along with others. So um, besides this biography of Dallas, there's a lot that you have written and and, can, and are, are you uh, working on anything right now? Any projects in the works that you can speak about? Yeah, I am, but it's going to, it may be, it may be a long time in the making, but I'm, uh, um, uh, y- yes, I, I'm, I'm working on something uh, that, that, focuses focuses on Dallas's four concerns and to maybe sort of try to open those up a bit. And then I hope that leads to a couple of other projects as far as where we look at um, various expressions of Christianity that are more uh, experiential and that are more, you see these concerns acted out and just uh, learning from those expressions. And so anyway, uh, yeah, his... Uh, I don't think I'll ever get away from his four critical concerns for the rest of my life as far as any thinking or writing. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. And for those that maybe uh, don't know, or maybe you do, that uh, Wellspring itself has been very connected to to Dallas. Obviously, we used to share office with the, uh, Martin. Well, actually, Dallas Willard, he was up here occasionally, up here in Menlo, and then uh, the Martin Institute. And so there's very much a, a symbiotic, I guess you'd say, relationship is we get to live out uh, really a lot of what Dallas taught and talked about in the context of serving local church leaders. So it's just a pleasure to speak to you, Gary, and uh, you know that we're, you know, in the doing uh, in different ways, just similar work and have both been uh, deeply influenced and affected by by Dallas's contribution and legacy. And so, again, just thank you so much for this time. Today. Thank you, Richard. And please, please tell uh, Terry and Patty hello. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can at Wellspring. For more information about who we are and what we do, please go to wellspringca.org or look us up on Facebook. Just search under Wellspring. Until next time, grace and peace.